In your Bible, go ahead and find Judges chapter 4, please, as we consider what it means to be, have Christ fulfill the righteousness of our life, yet not I, but through Christ in me. While you're finding Judges chapter 4, I'll remind you that today is the last day to let us know if you are interested in hosting a backyard Bible club this summer. Uh, Some places call them five-day clubs, backyard Bible clubs, uh, home VBS, a lot of different names. Uh, In keeping with what I have taught you about evangelism, when we studied a biblical theology of evangelism, uh, we are foregoing a traditional VBS this year in favor of backyard Bible clubs. That is because a traditional style VBS is built on an Old Testament understanding of evangelism where the goal is to bring people who do not know God to the place where God's people meet so they can encounter God. But when we read in the scriptures, we understood uh, that God himself has replaced that come-and-see style evangelism in the New Testament with an expectation that his new covenant people, that's us, would go and tell the world about his son and the gospel. No more should God's people be trying to gather unbelievers at the house of God like they did in the Old Testament because God has instructed us to do something different. Instead, we should be carrying out his instructions of Jesus by taking the gospel to the world. That's why we have missions, of course. That's why we have a missions prayer focus every week. But also, this is most easily accomplished through giving the gospel and sharing your life with your family, your friends, the people on your kids' soccer teams, uh, neighbors. To that end, this summer, we're hoping to host multiple of these backyard Bible clubs, which will essentially be a mini VBS in your backyard. They will run in the evening for maybe an hour and a half uh, for just a week of the summer, three days that week, Wednesday through Friday. Uh, You volunteer to host it at your house, and you commit to getting the word out through your life and through your neighborhood of contacts. Uh, and then we'll help you plan it and we'll, we'll pay for it and we'll help you staff it with volunteers to help. Right? So if that interests you, come and see me this week. Uh, but this will be the last time that we announce it publicly like this. Okay, having said that, hopefully you're in Judges 4. Uh, the anticipation and the goal of reading Judges with you on Sundays is that in reading about the lives of of the people in this time of judges and the mistakes that they made, we will be better positioned to avoid those mistakes ourselves. Hopefully by doing so, we can benefit from from learning from the hard experience of others so we don't have to repeat that same mistakes and gain those same hard experiences ourselves. Thus far, we've seen a few basic things in the book of Judges and its first three chapters. Number one, in the time of the judges, we noted that there was no central government in Israel. A key phrase of the book is, at that time, there was no king in Israel. And one of the author's main points for writing seems to be that living in the country in a life with no king was not great. That having a king to provide stability and a government to provide order, uh, this is one, actually, one of the biblical pieces of evidence that narrows down the authorship of the book of Judges as well, because the book itself doesn't have an author's name attached to it. One traditional guess is that the prophet Samuel wrote the book, uh, but during his lifetime as a, his work as a prophet, Samuel was a consistent opponent of Israel having established a king. And the day the people demanded a king, 
He was distraught. I mean, he was completely overcome with sorrow. And he tried to talk them out of it. And given that we've seen in Judges that this book is something of an apologetic for a king, it's somewhat safe to say that Samuel didn't write the book, uh, which narrows things down a little bit because the author in Hebrews is arguing for a government that can bring order to the chaos that we're going to find in the book. But during those days when Israel had no king, in order to avoid complete anarchy among his people, God had set up a system of judges for them. And we noted that this began under Moses after the people left Israel, uh, with judges being a judge, being an established authority, this agreed-upon person who could help settle disputes between people when they couldn't get along or settle things on their own. Within that framework, the book of Judges itself covers 400-plus years of history. That spans a dozen or more generations in just the 21 chapters of the book of Judges. And as such, each successive generation that comes after the previous one has to make its own choice as to whether or not they will follow God. God, we have noted from the book of Judges, does not force his ways of life or worship on anyone. The most plainly spoken example of this was in chapter 2, when the author of Judges specifically told us that the upcoming generation forgot about God. And they didn't follow him. And we learn from that that faithfulness to the Lord is not genetic. Can't be inherited. God doesn't have any grandchildren, is the way the old saying put it. That you and I and each person, whether in the book of Judges or today must decide and choose to serve God with our lives on our own as individuals. And so must everyone else as well. And then last week when we read chapter 3, we noted how eager God is to forgive the sin of people. It didn't matter that just two verses prior to their crying out for, to him for forgiveness, they had just been rejecting him. As soon as someone turns to God, he embraces them. As soon as they ask for forgiveness, he gives it to them. This is what the Bible means that it says when God is a gracious God, abounding in mercy. It means that God is not stingy with his grace. He's not sparing with his forgiveness. And we saw from chapter 3 that the best thing a person can do when they find themselves to be in sin or ignoring God, is to repent and to turn to him because Judges helps us understand you are guaranteed a welcome reception from God and a fresh start with him if you do. In this way, one of the the greatest contributions the book of Judges makes to our understanding of God and, and a Christian worldview is this notion that God is ready and generous with his forgiveness and his grace. Right? Because so, so many of the people we're going to meet in the pages of Judges, they were horrible human beings. Right? They put an astounding level of depravity on display for anyone to see. And yet, upon their repentance, they were rescued. They were welcomed and forgiven by God. And we noted that so too will we be if we have faith enough to follow their lead. 
So today, we pick up reading where we left off. Look at chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagorim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor that shall not be yours on the journey, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite was separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Hashereth Hagoim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hashereth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. He turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here, that you shall say no. But Hale, Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. 
So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, and they, destroy, and they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Right, the way I want to work this this morning is that uh, to first point out and clear up a few things in the narrative of Judges 4 that maybe don't make uh, immediate significant sense to us at the first reading, then when we have a better grasp of what happened and why and how it took place, then we can take a shot at grasping a few things that we can learn from this chapter and take those with us into the rest of our today. Right? So first off, the what of Judges 4 and then the so what. Right? The initial thing we note about, need to know about Judges 4 is not actually something that takes place in Judges 4, but rather from the end of chapter 3 that we read last week. And at the end of chapter 3, the author of Judges tells us that, quote, the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. So that means that for all, all of the depressive depravity and sin of Judges, for all that we know successive generations of people in Israel during the time of the Judges turned away from God repeatedly, they weren't all always bad. 80 years of peace is long enough time that passes such that there was a generation of people in there who actually did choose the Lord. They must have been at least mostly faithful to him, and they must have served with him something close to consistently because they prospered and they had peace. And those are the exact conditions that God said would result from faithfulness. Now, I point that out to us just so that we don't think the entire time of the judges was, was terrible, horrible, no good, very bad all the time. Right? There were highlights along the way, and this hidden generation between Judges 3 and 4 is one of them. They were faithful to God, and it's encouraging to note that we can be faithful to God as well. But also in keeping with the theme and the focus of Judges, they aren't given very much press. They get a line. Chapter 4 does not begin with a highlight. Now, a lot of the action in chapter 4 doesn't jump off the page to us because we're not familiar with the area and the, the terrain that they're dealing with. But take a look at verse 1, and let's see if we can change that. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Those verses give us the basic outline of the people involved on the bad guy side of things. You have the Israelites, who verse 1 says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you have Sisera, the commander of the enemy army, who oppressed Israel severely and was able to do so on the basis of what is reported as superior military force. Sisera employed an army, <clears throat> an army of 900 iron chariots. That's the ancient equivalent of a modern battle tank. And their effect on a population or on a, on a battle was anything but subtle. Essentially, it was do what I want or I'll kill you. 
I specifically do what I want or I'm going to run you over in my tank. And then I'll just take what I want when you're dead. But in Judges, chapters 4 and chapters 5 go together. And even though we're not going to read chapter 5 today, this morning, you should read it later. Chapter 4 is the narrative of what happened. And we already know from reading it that Israel wins the battle in the end. Chapter 5 is a celebration and a recap. We already know that Israel wins the battle and Sisera dies in the end. Chapter 5 then becomes a song of celebration to that effect. And as such, it includes a few details that chapter 4 does not. Specifically, chapter 5 indicates that one way in which Sisera oppressed Israel was by closing the roads, presumably by use of his tanks. That means that God's people couldn't travel, they couldn't trade, because if they ventured out onto the roads, they had to face the chariots. And so he essentially imprisoned the people in their own land, and that's what you can do when you have tanks and the other guy doesn't. So for the first few verses of chapter 4, they give us the basic layout of the time. This new generation of Israelites has been unfaithful, and as a result, they are disciplined by God, who allows Sisera to oppress them, and that goes on for 20 years until God's people are finally miserable enough that they cry out to the Lord. The pain of staying the same became greater than the pain of change, and so they turned to God. And God, for his part, immediately responds to their cries for help. Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. All that to say that Deborah was a judge. Deborah was one of those agreed-upon authorities in the land who helped decide cases between two people who couldn't get along and settle matters for themselves. The author even gives the reader the location of her courtroom, essentially, just in case you wanted to go and check it out. It also tells us that that Deborah was a prophetess, meaning she was someone who delivered messages to the people for God. Verse 6 contains one of those messages. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give them into your hand. God sends his word through Deborah to a man named Barak, that he has been chosen to deliver Israel from their oppression of Sisera. By Deborah doing that, she was fulfilling the biblical job of a prophet to deliver a message from God to his people. And that would have been the end of Deborah's function if Barak had done what he was supposed to do. And I do love the fact that Deborah essentially tells Barak, you don't even have to do anything. Just show up and God will take care of the rest. God says, I will draw out the enemy. I will pull in his troops. 
I will destroy them. I will give you the victory. All Barak has to do is go to the place where God said and do the thing God told him to do, and God will solve the problem. Except that he didn't. Look at verse 8. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. What just happened is that Deborah tells Barak, go get an army because God is going to deliver Sisera into your hands. To which Barak says, only if you go with me. The reason behind his hesitation, it's not, it's not stated, it's not told. It might be personal. Maybe he was scared. Right? Maybe it was religious, meaning he had a lack of faith. He wanted the prophet there as a lucky spiritual charm. Either way, by hesitating, Barak forfeits the blessing of God and the rewards that would have come with obedience. In his exact and specific case, that means he will not gain the rewards and the glory for being the commander and the conqueror. Those rewards and glory will go to someone else. They'll go to Deborah now. Now that's bad for him, but I think it's good for us And that this helps us to see that God's faithfulness and God's effectiveness in the world is not dependent upon any one person and their faithfulness to him. The Israelites cried to God for help, and he sent them help in the form of Barak. Barak, who then immediately tried to bail on the job, which could have left God's people high and dry and helpless, And still under the thumb of oppression from Sisera. But God overruled Barak's hesitation and saved the day for his people anyways. This is just one example of God not allowing someone else to wreck his plans. That God is bigger than the sins and the missteps of other people. And the sins and the missteps of other people should never cause us to lose faith in God and his plans. Okay, the battle between the two countries plays out over the next several verses. Sisera hears news that the Israelites have gathered a small army, so he counters with a big army. Barak is gathered on the mountain of Tabor. Sisera is at the foot of the mountain in the valley in the huge plain with a big army and 900 tanks. If we're going to take bets on who is going to win, the odds would be decidedly in Sisera's favor. He has better, he has more men, he has better weapons, he has a trained army, he has a field on which to fight, and he has tanks to employ in that fight. Signifying again the unwillingness of Barak to do what God has asked him to do, Deborah is the one who gives the order to attack. Look at verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Those verses tell how Israel routed Sisera's army. And it was a rout. And they completely defeated the enemy. They killed literally all of them. This leaves, however, if you're a neutral observer just reading chapter 4, it leaves you wondering how an outnumbered, outgunned little army defeated a superior force so quickly and so badly. The answer was found in a little phrase in verse 14, where it says, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The difference was that the Lord, the God of the Israelites, fought for them. The Lord has gone out before you. All you got to do, Barak, is sweep in behind and mop up the leftovers. Now, how God fought for the Israelites and what it means to say that the Lord went out before them What that means in terms of a battle plan isn't specified, but the author did leave us one clue. In chapter 5, during that celebratory song, when they're celebrating this battle that has just taken place, uh, and memorializing this victory, the author references the fact that during the battle, the river Kishon, which was in the valley at the bottom of the mountain where Sisera's forces were, the river swept away much of the enemy army. Now, the exact details as to how that happened aren't listed. It was a flash flood or something like that isn't recorded for us. It's a bit of speculation. The only thing we know for sure is that God weaponized the river on behalf of his people with the result that it swept away their enemies, allowing the Israelites, though fewer in number, to come in and clean up what was left of the enemy of God's people. That includes Sisera, the commander. Now, the narrative picks up after that with him in particular. Look at verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him, And drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. First time I heard this story, Uh, taught in church. I was a junior high student. Whoever thought this was a good idea to teach this to junior high boys, 
Uh, I don't know. But our teacher, I will never forget this lesson from junior high Sunday school. Our teacher at the time made sure to emphasize for us that JL's tent pegs were not like our tent pegs. That when we go camping, we pitch our tents on a nice little plot of grass and dirt, which is usually pretty welcoming and solid. That means that our tent pegs are pretty short, typically about, you know, six inches or so. And anymore, they're frequently made of plastic. But six-inch plastic tent pegs that I grew up with weren't going to be long enough to go through a guy's head and stick fast into the ground. That clues us into the fact that JL wasn't packing plastic camping tent pegs. She had a desert tent with desert tent pegs made for pitching tents in the sand, which is soft, which means you have to pound the thing in a couple of feet into the sand before it fastens solid. All of that to say, you read in these verses, and it becomes clear that J.L. skewers Sisera's head with a tent peg that's probably two, maybe even three feet long. And then the story ends. The story ends when Barak finally comes by. J.L. calls out to him. He says, hey, come over here. I've got something to show you. She shows him Sisera's dead body laying in her tent, nailed to the ground through his head. The enemy is dead. The oppressing army is now routed. And according to the end of chapter 5, the people then live peacefully for 40 years. Now that's, that's a nice little story. Actually kind of a nasty little story. To us it's a nice little story, I guess unless your sister is mother. In which case you're probably not a fan of J.L. or Barak. Interestingly enough though, uh, side note, you can read about what Deborah thought of Sisera's mom at the end of chapter 5. So when you go home and you read this celebratory song in Judges chapter 5, uh, pay attention to what, what they have to say about Sisera's mother. It's kind of fascinating and also kind of cruel at the same time. But you and I are not Sisera's mother. And we have to try and figure out what Judges 4 has to do with our lives and why God would have preserved this story in the Bible for us. And to that end, the first thing we can learn is something that we already touched on earlier. And that is that God's work in our lives and in this world cannot be thwarted by the sins and the mistakes of other people. God wanted to deliver the Israelites and he chose Barak to do it. Barak said, thanks but no thanks. But that didn't mean God's work didn't get done. It just meant that someone else got the privilege of doing it. And not Barak. What we learn from Judges 4, the first thing, is that God has ordained people to be part of his work and his plans. And those plans will succeed with or without us. The overriding theme of chapter 4 and the focus of this story is obviously on God delivering the Israelites from the oppression of Sisera and his chariot tanks. Right? But riding shotgun with that overriding theme is the theme that God was using people to do it. His plan was to use Barak, but Barak bailed on the plan. Right? So God chose to use Deborah and Jael instead. And the walkaway lesson that we take from that Judge 4 is that God desires to use you as a part of his larger plan. I don't know what made Barak hesitate. 
I don't know what made Barak afraid to do what God wanted him to do. The only thing I know in that regard is that God wanted to use him to accomplish a great thing for his people, and he wouldn't do it. Now, it very well may be possible that you are sitting here today, and you are in that exact same place, that God wants to use you to do something in his work, but you're hesitating. It may be that you've never come to the place of surrender to God at all. And that's what's making you hesitate. Right? Like the Israelites at the beginning of the chapter, you're living possibly in your own private rebellion against God. Right? Chasing other gods, living your own life without giving much thought to His. If that's the case, the first thing you need to do this morning is follow their example and cry out to the Lord. Their sin and their punishment was obvious. It was right out in the open, as subtle as a tank, for everyone to see. Right? Your sin and your rebellion against God might not be so obvious. Your sin might be hidden, which might make your misery private. But even so, if that's the case, please remember, please observe from judges how quick and how willing God is to forgive sin. How quick and how willing God will be to receive you into friendship and fellowship with himself. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. Because underlying all of this are the plain gospel truths of scripture. The Bible teaches us that God made the world and everything in it. It teaches us that God desires to live with people in friendship and relationship in this world that he has made, except that we fail to live with him. We rebel against his authority as our creator, and we prefer instead to choose our way instead of his. Right? The Bible calls that rebellion sin, and it makes plain that all people are guilty. That the end result of sin is death, and ultimately separation from God and eternity. And because of that, we know that death and hell wait for each person who remains in their sin and their guilt. That's a sobering assessment of the human condition. And it's a depressing conclusion to think about. But the Bible also tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. But instead, God desires that all people should come to repentance and find eternal life. And to that end, God has established a means by which a person can be reconciled to himself and have their rebellion and have their sin forgiven. That means of salvation was to send his son, Jesus, as a substitute sacrifice for people so that anyone who believes in faith that his death will substitute for theirs will be saved and set free from the penalty of sin and death. So today, if you've never made your peace with God, you have to know that he is waiting for you in the same loving, patient way that he waited for the Israelites from chapter 4. That God will forgive your sins as quick as he forgave theirs. That he will welcome you back just like he welcomed them back. That he will restore you to fellowship and peace with himself all on the basis of your repentance from sin and your trust in Jesus and his death as Savior and Lord. 
And in order to make that a reality in your life, all you have to do is imitate their example and look to him for salvation and deliverance. And God promises to hear and he promises to save. It also may be possible, though, that you're here today and you're like Barak, one of God's people, confirmed in his life, hesitating to do something you know God wants you to do because, well, I don't, I don't know why, because. Maybe you don't even know why because you're hesitating to do God's will and to follow his ways or to do a thing he wants you to do. It could be as simple and as easy as taking the baptism class that we have coming up. It could be as terrifying as talking to your neighbor about spiritual things. You may need to do some spiritual work with how you eat or how you exercise or maybe how you don't eat or don't exercise. Maybe it is that you're controlling your pocketbook to the degree that you're excluding God and his work from your financial considerations and he wants you to be a part of what he's doing in this world by making it possible with your financial support. This is, all these things I'm naming, this is the mundane spiritual work of priorities that builds spiritual muscle we need to make it through life with God. See, we're not talking about big, open, rebellious sins. We're talking about little ways that we maintain our own private kingdom and our own private hearts and our little rebellions against Him. Eating and exercising and driving and being angry with our whoever or money control all of this god wants to take and transform into his ways of living and his ways of going about the world and if we will do that he promises to use us in them to accomplish his work but at the same time we have to understand that if we can't stand up in the little test and obey god in the day-to-day how can we ever hope to stand up under the big stress and be faithful in the trial. So the challenge for you might be, make like Deborah, not Barak, eagerly do the Lord's work today, knowing that he's pleased with your effort, however imperfect it may be. So regardless of where this all lands with you, you can know from Judges 4 that God desires to save you, that God desires to use you, just like he desired to save the Israelites and just like he wanted to use Barak and just like he did use Deborah. And, lest I get too hard on Barak, it's worth noting that he is one of the very few people from 4,000 years of human history to get his name enshrined in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Deborah and Barak are held up as paragons of faith to imitate. So it seems like he wasn't such a bad guy after all, and he eventually did come around. And that gives me great hope, because most days I'm Barack, not Deborah. Most days I go, you want me to do what, Lord? Like, I don't really want to. I'm probably not supposed to say that out loud, because I'm the pastor and everything. But that's the way life goes, that most days we're Barack. But Barak himself, in the end, turns out to be an example, just like the Israelites, of someone who wasn't initially faithful, but then came around and was. And God received him, and God rewarded him, and God used him. But the question that remains is where and how do you need to do likewise? Where and how do you need to be like him this week? 
So as we finish up Judges 4 and we think about what has happened here, let's pray right now and let's ask God for the spiritual courage that will be necessary to make this a reality in our life as we go through today and tomorrow and the next day, knowing God desires to save us, knowing he will use us if we will just be faithful. Let's do that. Our God, this morning, I thank you for uh, recording the history of Barak in your Bible for us, where we confess that so very often we're just like him, that we hesitate to do your work. Sometimes we, we're scared, sometimes we're nervous, sometimes we're just lazy. God, sometimes we're just selfish. And I pray that you would help us to not be. I pray that we would take from Judges for the rock-solid understanding that you love us, that you desire to save us, that you desire to use us to accomplish things in our own lives and the lives of others, and that we would imitate Barak and we would imitate Deborah by being this willing tool in your hand to accomplish your purposes in our life and in the world that you have left. Help us by your Holy Spirit to do that this week, knowing that we won't accomplish it without him. In Christ's name we pray.